Hello and welcome to the Herbal Sensorium, a sanctuary for musings and explorations into the sensational realm of clinical herbalism. I'm your host, Erica Gallantin of Sovereignty Herbs and the Herbal Practice Connection, and I am so very grateful for your company today. February, a month I enter braving, hunkered down like a dormant seed. Yet out of this stillness, a momentum is building. Day by day, the cold darkness becomes further outchased by the lightness of spring and the hope that its new beginnings and possibilities inspire. Fittingly, this month is heralded by a variety of celebratory festivals from my ancestral traditions, all of which surround a devotion to the land as our source of life and nourishment. One of these traditions come from the Celtic festival Imbolg, sometimes written with a C, sometimes written with a G. It's a cross-quarter midpoint between winter solstice and the spring equinox and whose name, according to some sources, is likely derived from the Gaelic word bolg, for belly, so meaning in the belly. Some say the word imbolg refers to the lactation of sheep and the beginning of the lambing season. Regardless of the exact origins of the name imbolg, it's clear that it is a celebration of the relationship between people and the land and a time of prayer or beckoning for the fertility of the growing season ahead. One of my favorite Celtic mythology and folklore spaces online is the Caliox Herbarium, where there is a rich writing about a sister February celebration from Scotland and Ireland, often called uh, the Day of St. Brigid or La Fée La Brie. And this holiday is, a, you know, in honor of St. Bridget from the Catholic tradition, which some say came to replace or even fit seamlessly into the pre-Christian festival of Imbolc. St. Bridget's Day is richly depicted by themes surrounding the thawing of the soil, the returning of the serpent, and offerings and prayers for the fecundity of the land. These themes are also present in the stories from Norse and even Greco-Roman traditions, another example being Lupercalia, a pastoral festival of ancient Rome observed annually on February 15th to purify the city and promote health and fertility. Interestingly enough, Lupercalia was also known as Dies Februaris, after the purification instruments called Februa the basis for the month named February. Stories from these traditions, with their themes of fecundity and prayer, remind me about the reciprocal relationship between the human body and the soil. Now bear with me a second. The body needs the soil to provide its nutriment, the source of its vitality. And in return, the soil needs the body to labor on its behalf, to feed it, work it, honor it. Indeed, from my perspective, archetypes from these traditions speak loudly to me of honoring and preparing both the land and my body for the demands of the growing season ahead. 
I do keep thinking about the joy of my spring food and medicine gardens. But before I get there, there's the compost pile that desperately needs turning, and the chicken coop that needs cleaning, the hillside that needs clearing, the seeds that need starting. So for me, these themes of readying earth, land, and soil can easily translate into what I must do, or ought to do, to ready my own soil, my body, my flesh, for the commands of the relationship to the land. The soil must be cared for in order to do what I am asking it to do, and so must my body. And thus we arrive at this month's musings in the Herbal Sensorium, where I'll be exploring herbalism as a means to encouraging a loving relationship with our bodies, my perspective on the role of adaptogens in providing deep nourishment for depleted systems, and a spotlight on a wildly and widely studied adaptogenic herb, Eleuthero, or Eleutherococcus centicosis, that is brand new to my medicine gardens, but who has been a steady and stable ally in my clinical practice for over 17 years. But before we dive in, for those of you who are looking forward to joining me for the Nurtured Herbal Practitioner Retreat, I want to let you know that deposits are due March 1st. And if you are new around here and haven't yet heard of this upcoming retreat, I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about it. Whether you are a student of herbalism transitioning into clinical practice or a seasoned herbal practitioner who's been at it for some time, during this five-day retreat, not only will you find inspiration and nourishment for your passion and evolution as both a clinician and entrepreneur, you will also gain community and a supportive network of peers, as well as have the epic opportunity to rekindle yourself at the iconic United Plant Savers Golden Seal Botanical Sanctuary during peak woodland medicinal and wildflower season. We have some amazing core workshops planned for this retreat, along with daily roundtables to nurture your path as a clinician and an entrepreneur. There are also lots of joy-building activities planned, including guided medicinal plant hikes through the sanctuary, a botanical perfume blending evening, and even a belly dancing class, and so much more, including scheduled downtime for rest and relaxation. You can find out more about this amazing gathering on my website, and I will also put a link to uh, the retreat there in my show notes. And for everyone who's listening, I want to let you know about an upcoming online interactive intensive that I'm teaching in March called Herbal and Aromatic Energetics in the Emotional Realm. I'm really super excited about this online course. It's just going to be amazing. In this four-part online interactive series, we will be exploring traditional Western herbal and aromatic energetics and how they can be called upon in support of the emotional realm. Using the four elements of earth, fire, water, and air as a framework, students will be guided through the fundamentals of humoral and physiomedical traditions as a basis for both interpreting and utilizing herbal and aromatic actions to support wellness and balance in the human psyche. This series does take place online in our online classroom and comes with a course kit, which is super exciting. 
Uh, this will be uh, full of samples of dried herbs and aromas, which we will be experiencing together during class to help demonstrate each of the elements and their respective properties. I have put a link to this intensive in the show notes as well, so I hope that you'll consider joining me. And with that, and without further ado, let's dive into this month's musings in the Herbal Sensorium. had a heartfelt conversation with a client not long ago about how difficult it can be to look ourselves in the eyes. Personally, I can remember an era of my own life when standing in front of the mirror, brushing my teeth or washing my hands, I would avoid my own gaze as if I knew that by looking, really looking into my own eyes or my soul, I would somehow be reminded of my shame. I've actually had this type of conversation with many of my clients. The experience of consciously avoiding the feelings of brokenheartedness surrounding the relationship we have or have had with our bodies. Some of my clients even have described these relationships with their bodies as an unhappy marriage wrought with unmet needs, betrayal, and even abuse. I can relate to these sentiments, and maybe you can too. Thinking back on these stories of broken promises and denied commitments to our bodies, I'm not surprised by the level of disembodiment that most of us play out on a day-to-day basis. I'm also not surprised that so many of us feel so unhealthy and unwell. And we come by it honestly. I mean, we're set up for failure and unwellness right out of the gates. And the many facets and intersectionalities of trauma Healthcare, culture, race, gender, sexuality, economics, and society at large that each of us experience just add more and more shame to this failure. It's like from the moment we are conscious about our bodies, popular culture and society teach us how to deny our bodies, to see the body as unsafe, broken, dirty, stupid, enemy. The body is a threat which must be isolated away from the self, a machine, without feelings or life force that could attack us at any time. We are taught that we will never be smart enough to know what our body really needs, that we'll never be able to understand the language that our body speaks. We're taught to hate and to fear our bodies, to push our bodies beyond their limits, to deny our bodies rest, joy, and nourishment. We are taught not to love and trust our bodies. And this is ever more so the case in the face of inherited or even chronic health problems. These are themes that are so common in my clinical practice as an herbalist that it has become very, very clear to me that my work in the world is all about supporting people back into a loving relationship with their bodies regardless of underlying inherited or chronic health problems. For me, the goal of my clinical herbal practice is, and should always be, to support people in viewing wellness challenges as a language that the body speaks, a pleading for support, a language that we can in fact understand if we take the time and muster the courage to listen and learn. In this way, 
wellness challenges can then become a source of growth and development within our bodies, our psyches, and even our souls. And don't get me wrong, I'm right in the trenches with all of this as well, for sure. A few weeks back, I had the pleasure of re-listening to an audio series by Jungian psychoanalyst, author, and poet Clarissa Pinkola Estes called The Joyous Body. I've put a link to this series in the show notes, but in this series, she points out how so many of us are tasked with and unlearning about our bodies, and that the body is not a dumb servant, but a divine human traveler and consort. Consort. The body as consort. What a phenomenal and life-changing concept for me and my clients. As a noun, consort is defined as a spouse, especially of a reigning monarch. A marriage between soul and flesh, the flesh becomes the soul's closest ally. The word consort is also defined as a vessel or ship that accompanies another to ensure it reaches its destination. I just love this definition and and the meaning behind it. I just think the body as the soul's protection and fellow traveler. There are feelings of togetherness and support in these definitions. Two concepts that I often find are completely absent from the relationships we have with our bodies. Okay, so I can hear you saying, what the heck does this have to do with adaptogenic herbs, Erica? You said you were going to talk about adaptogens. (laughs) For those of you who are not familiar with this category of herbs, I will be defining them momentarily, but... I wanted to premise my discussion about adaptogens in their personal and clinical use within the context of a larger worldview about the role of herbs and herbalism in people's lives. I teach a class, Herbalist as Wounded Healer, where I talk about how for me, clinical herbalism is not about using herbs to treat problems, but rather using herbs as tools to support our body's own healing work. And that herbs should not be considered solutions to swallow. Because the person consuming the herbs is the solution. The change of perspective towards their body and how they treat their body is the solution. Having agency and holding oneself accountable to one's own actions towards the body to the fullest extent possible. This is the solution. Herbs are vessels or vehicles or allies for this life-changing or even soul-evolving work. So when I think about the use and misuse of adaptogens, I have to go back to the underlying approach or worldview of their use. So what are adaptogens anyway? For those of you who aren't familiar with this action uh, and this kind of category of herbs, a really quick, broad-stroke definition that I think covers the bases comes from Donnie Yance's book, called Adaptogens in Medical Herbalism. I've definitely put a link to this book in the show notes. And he says, an essential aspect of adaptogens is that they enhance allostasis by nourishing the neuroendocrine system. And this includes the HPA axis, our fight or flight system, as well as our immune system, metabolism, blood sugar control, reproductive hormone balance, etc. 
So I'll just say that one more time. An essential aspect of adaptogens is that they enhance allostasis by nourishing the neuroendocrine system. And I like the simple definition of allostasis as the process by which the body responds to stressors in order to regain homeostasis or balance. So the body gets assaulted with a stressor and after dealing with the stressor, strives to return to a balance point if it can. And that returning to that balance is allostasis. So in his book, Donnie Yance also cites definitions of adaptogens, which come to us from scientific research, which include providing protection from stress-induced damage and stimulating regeneration and repair mechanisms. Sounds pretty awesome, right? Their use, therefore, leads to increased energy and stamina, an improved ability to carry out demanding activities, and an enhanced ability to tolerate and recover from all types of stressors. Sounds like magic in a bottle to me. But it's this last piece right here. When we put it in the hands of a disembodied consumer, this is where the crap about adaptogens starts to creep in. But I'll touch on that momentarily. I have linked Donnie Yance's awesome tome to adaptogens in the show notes, like I mentioned. And although I may not see things exactly the same way as he does, I really appreciate the introductory chapters in his book where he goes through his herbalism philosophy and how adaptogens fit into that philosophy. We come from similar traditions in regard to our therapeutic rationale, so I really appreciate what he has to say there. This book also has a really wonderful overview of the history of scientific research into adaptogens which began in the 1940s during what was then called the Soviet Union. I'm going to recall a little bit of this history in a moment, but as far as a historical account is concerned, Donnie Yance does a really thorough job rehashing the progression of research up to and through the explosion of adaptogenic supplements uh, in the American dietary supplement market. So, One of the stories that is always told, and we have to be careful to consider how stories are told, is that even though adaptogenic herbs have been a part of traditional healing systems for as long as humans have been using plant medicine, the modern Western use and misuse of adaptogens comes to us by means of scientific research originating out of what was then called the Soviet Union and the country's push towards industrialization. Long story short, these plants, specifically Panax ginseng or Asian ginseng and Eleuthero, Eleutherococcus entocosis, which I'm going to share with you more about later, both of these species were being studied to review their protective effects in the face of chemical exposure. This evolved into studying these uh, plants to increase physical and mental cognition for athletes, astronauts, and by the time World War II came around, soldiers on the battlefield. And there is often an air of contempt when us Westerners recount this research history. The idea of the Russian super soldier and the Russian government wanting to abuse and push its people beyond their physical and mental limits. And this story is often mired with Western ethnocentricity and a tendency towards an us-versus-them mentality. 
So I want to be careful to state that if you're interested in the history of research into into adaptogens, (laughs) excuse me, you should be mindful of the cultural bias that you place on the impetus behind this research. But from an outsider's perspective, research into adaptogens was all about pushing the human body and mind beyond capacity and turning to adaptogens to help clean up the mess it left behind. At least, this is the way research showed up in the American marketplace back in the 1980s. And this is how adaptogens are still marketed to consumers. Go, 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 go some more, go even further, and right before you crash, take some adaptogens in your coffee so you can push yourself even harder under the guise that you're taking adaptogens so it's all going to be okay. But it's not okay. This is definitely a huge misuse of these amazing plants. But it is also understandable that American culture has taken them to this place. It's another way to enable self-abuse, another disembodied approach to using herbs, especially as it is seemingly getting harder and harder to survive, raise a family, make a living, find any joy, and there ain't nothing but stress for most folks. It's no surprise that we're reaching for these magic bullets, and it's no surprise that we're probably not using them correctly or in ways that are actually nourishing to our lives and to our bodies. In fact, as a result of the way that adaptogens are marketed and used here in the U.S., as a clinical practitioner, I spent many years avoiding them like the plague. My internal dialogue was all about not enabling my clients to push themselves harder than they were already being pushed by themselves and their circumstances. My dear friend and colleague, Jim McDonald, has a take on adaptogens that he calls the credit card analogy. You may think you have the vitality funds to make an expenditure with your reserves So you use adaptogens only to find yourself in vitality debt. And the more debt you accumulate, the harder it is to get out of the red. Well, his analogy is way better than that, but hopefully you get the point. And it's worth saying again and again, (laughs) adaptogens don't give you energy. Let me just repeat that. Adaptogens don't give you energy. It's not like there's some sort of energy nugget inside each adaptogenic supplement that you take that has a bunch of energy in it that it then gives to you when you swallow it. In fact, the opposite is true. In my understanding and experience of adaptogens, these are plants that liberate stored resources and command an efficiency of systems and processes that require resources. If you don't have the resources to spare for what the adaptogen is asking your body to do, then when you take that adaptogen, like Jim says, you run the risk of driving your body deeper into burnout. So clinically speaking, for years, I was almost afraid of adaptogens. I didn't want to send my clients down a road that could lead to further burnout, especially when so many are already so burned out and so fatigued. But over the past few years, let's just say since the start of the pandemic, most, if not all of my clients are struggling with the highest levels of stress and the lowest amounts of vitality 
to manage that stress than they have in their entire lives. I feel like I could raise my hand to that sentiment. I have had to step outside of the fear-inducing adaptogen supplement obsession and learn to think differently about these amazing plants. So from my perspective, again, adaptogens liberate vitality resources and command an efficiency of systems and processes that also require vitality resources to manage. So how do we build that vitality so that adaptogens aren't demanding from the body what it doesn't have to give? This is the question. Building up vitality, like building the soil in the garden, starts from what you put into it. Nutrition is huge here. And not just adding in the good stuff, but taking out the stuff that the body struggles with, even if it's good for someone else. Hydration is also key here. Finding moments of laughter during the day is key. Rest, movement, all of the things as herbalists that we coach our clients about. When this nourishment is presently and proactively attended to, adaptogens can be a game changer. But we can't ask the plants to do this work for us. Adaptogens are not a solution to swallow. However, they can be life-altering and provide a deep reset when accompanied with loving attitudes and actions towards the body. And loving attitudes and actions towards the body can take some time to develop for a person, which is why I often don't just reach for the juice, if you know what I mean. But I have seen such amazing results in my clients who are doing the work of loving and caring for their bodies, reaping benefits from adaptogen use, including healthy blood sugar control, restful deep sleep, healthy reproductive hormone cycling, healthy immune and inflammatory responses, elevated mood and decreased irritability and agitation and improved vitality in regard to managing overwhelm associated with an overload of stress that just ain't ever going to go away. In this context, where the person is the solution and the adaptogen is the support tool, these amazing plants become less vitality debt-inducing because the person taking them is filling up their vitality account in a variety of ways. This is where adaptogens do their most amazing healing work. When they are not going it alone, when they are part of a team of strategies. In this way, adaptogen use is no longer about pushing oneself beyond limits or the fast train to burnout. Like, let's leave out the caffeine, shall we? So next time you are considering an adaptogenic herb for yourself or for your client, Ask yourself about vitality inputs. Will you be building the soil that is the body or depleting it? And remember Erica suggesting that the behaviors towards the body have to change first. So when it comes to adaptogenic herbs, I have a few favorites, including American ginseng, uh, Panax quinquefolius, Codenopsis or Codenopsis pelosula, Shizandra, Shizandra chinensis. Oh, I just 
Let me tell y'all, I love Shizandra. I have, it is just, I feel like I need to do a whole episode just on this plant because my goodness, I love it so much. And the last and definitely not least is the Eleuthero or Eleutherococcus centicosis, who I want to talk a little bit more about today. So once known as Siberian ginseng, Eleuthero actually isn't a ginseng at the genus level, which are panax species, but it is in the ginseng family, Aureliaceae. And we stopped calling it Siberian ginseng here in the United States in order to avoid confusion with Panax species, which are true ginseng species. But they're all in the same plant family, and they all have a similarity to them when it comes to sort of an adaptogenic approach. And in many different traditions across the planet, they are a species of herbs that are considered in very high regard because of their adaptogen actions. So Eleuthero, or Eleutherococcus centicosis, is a perennial native to the Russian taiga forest and the northern regions of China, Japan, and Korea. Um, and Ratio Check of uh, Strictly Medicinal Seeds says it's hardy in zones three to seven. And I also, one of the things I think I'm starting to learn about Eleuthero is that um, it is cultivated in some parts of Europe, um, but the majority, I think, of Eleuthero caucus centicosis is actually wild harvested, uh, specifically from China and northern China. And I do believe that there are some sustainability, gosh, excuse me, let me say that one more time. I do believe there are some sustainability issues uh, surrounding the species, although diving into it, um, I looked at the IUCN red list and I didn't find Eleutherococcus centicosis specifically, um, although there are a variety of other Eleutherococcus species that are native uh, to that part of the world that are indeed on the red list. So uh, it's just something we should probably keep our eyes on. Anyway... Um, in its deciduous habitat, uh, Luthero is an understory woody shrub whose roots connect vast distances over large areas of ground. So uh, I haven't had the fortunate opportunity to dig my Luthero up yet. Um, it's only two years old in my garden, so I don't even know if I ever will dig it up. Um, but I, I have a vision of it having quite an extensive root system, especially knowing that the shrub can grow up to 20 feet high. Um, and I, I've put a link in the show notes to a video of uh, Joe Hollis from Mountain Gardens, uh, who's just a, a wonderful, blessed man and a wonderful herbalist and, and plant grower. Um, and this video is of him talking about Eleuthero, standing next to a couple of them that grow on his property. And they are huge, you guys. So um, he also has a ton of interesting things to say about the species and its medicines. So you can check out that link in my show notes if you're interested in actually having a really good look at the plant. So as I mentioned, this is the second year that I've had Eleuthero in my medicine gardens. And the flowers in the photo for this podcast episode are from the plant that is growing in my gardens. And I can't quite tell if it's happy yet or not. Um, it's not done a huge amount 
uh, you know, in its its aerial parts. Um, but it has a really large amount of root space to kind of fill out. And so my hope is that it's, you know, brewing under the surface, but we'll see. I can tell that you know, it is, it wants to take up a ton of space. So if this is a plant that you're interested in growing, um, you know, it definitely deserves to have like a place of honor in your gardens, uh, knowing that it's going to get wide and tall and shrub-like um, and really just want to take up some room. Um, so Eleuthero is said to thrive in full sun uh, and moist soil. Uh, in the north, so kind of, you know, northern extremities of its range. But if you're further south than zone seven, let's say, um, it's going to probably want a little bit more shade uh, and a little bit more moisture in that hot, hot, sunny climate. Um, and I've been told or I have read that it does really well growing in standard garden soil. And I'm not really sure what standard garden soil is uh, or woodland soils. Um, and so for me, this is kind of, you know, trying to get as rich and humusy and loamy as possible, um, and not too compact. So the shrub has the opportunity to really stretch its legs. And along its mostly undisturbed branches of stems, you're going to find these downward facing spikes or thorns on, on the younger stems. The older stems tend to mature kind of into a more of a smoothness. Um, and this really reminds me of another Aureliaceae plant, Devil's Club, Opalopanax, uh, with its thorniness. Um, in fact, one of its many common names is Devil's Shrub. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. But Richo check uh, on his website, Strip, uh, Strictly Medicinal Seeds, um, he actually offers the potted plant as a spineless variety. So with less of the um, really dangerous kind of prickly devil-like spikes. Um, so if you're interested in, in buying a potted plant, he offers those. Um, so the leaves of Eleuthero are uh, what are called palmately compound, right? So it looks like a hand, kind of like American ginseng. And there's five elliptical leaflets, and each of these leaflets have a serrated edge. They're often attached to the stem of the plant by sort of like a reddish, almost maroon looking petiole. And the flowers are small. Um, they are, are both white as also have these kind of maroon uh, aspects to them. Um, there's many of them and they're in this sort of umbel shape or umbiliferous shape. Um, and they have both, uh, you know, the uh, pistillate and staminate parts um, and they can be self-fertile. Um, after pollination, there are these really small, dark purple or almost black looking fruits that are produced in the form of a droop um, and that have multiple kernels. And it's really compact. So it almost looks like a, like a berry on its own, but it's actually, it's actually a compound fruit. Um, those are pretty fun. They disappear really quickly as well. I think my, the chipmunks on my land really love them. <laughs> Thinking about the chipmunks running around all like spun out on Eleuthero berries. <laughs> That's the last thing I need. <clears throat> so the, the root and root bark, uh, as well as the leaves and the fruits, have all been documented as having medicinal use or history of use. And the root in particular is known for its anti-inflammatory and immune strengthening actions, uh, as well as for promoting healthy blood sugar regulation 
Um, and it's recommended uh, by the Eleuthero, specifically the, the root, is recommended by the European Medicines Agency to be prescribed to, uh, and this language here is funny, I don't use language like this, but the European Medicines Agency does. And they say that Eleuthero can be prescribed to treat symptoms of asthenia, such as fatigue and weakness. But um, as Paul Bergner states, uh, you know, my another colleague of mine, um, he wrote he wrote some information on a, a blog post that I found that I thought I would take care and, and read back because I just think it's really super important. So even though this this herb can be used to support folks who are really suffering with fatigue and weakness, it is mainly for people who are weak and run down. Right. This is what this is what Paul Bergner is saying about Eleuthero. Not for overamped types who want some more juice, right? And I think this is a really wonderful distinction about, you know, going back to what I said about the role of adaptogens and needing to fill up the vitality account with other loving attitudes and actions towards the body before we start bringing in adaptogens to help build and strengthen. So, you know, if you're if you're weak and run down, um, you know, there's other things that you should be doing as well in addition to. And, you know, these plants aren't for, they're not to just promote more juice, right? They're not just to, to go, 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 go. This is like, I think I'm probably hammering the point home here. This is just not what adaptogens are for. We can do a lot of damage to both our bodies and the unscrupulous use can do a lot of damage to the plant kingdom. So I'd like to kind of reframe this uh, for folks, you know. Um, and so a few of the constituents believed to be at least partially responsible for these actions uh, include eleutherosides and other triterpenoid sapini, saponins, for those of you who are interested. Uh, there's also phytosterols present as well as polysaccharides. Um, you know, we know polysaccharides to be kind of immune supporting compounds. So just a lot of really big, um, you know, uh, very big and lustrous chemical compounds in this plant um, that are incredibly bioactive and have kind of been studied separately for uh, their bioactivity. So when it comes down to my personal feelings and impressions of Eleuthero, um, Eleuthero stands out to me as a very neutral adaptogen. Um, although a lot of sources state that it's considered warming, I, uh, I haven't found this to be the case in my experience. I, I tend to really think about Eleuthero as quite neutral as far as it's, you know, that axis of heating versus cooling. And in, also in my experience, Eleuthero is not overtly stimulating, right? It's not like, uh, it's not like red ginseng, like panax ginseng or rhodiola, for example, which I find very stimulating. Um, I might even say that in my experience for most people that I've worked with Eleuthero with is actually that Eleuthero is actually mildly relaxing for some folks, for most folks. Um, I, I have had a few clients um, that have experienced kind of increased agitation correlated with use of Eleuthero, but that has not been the norm. The norm has been um, a, a, a mild relaxing action. Uh, enough relaxation in the system to provide some space from oneself. In fact, I find this herb to be one of the kindest, most nurturing of the adaptogens. 
Um, and, and I know that a lot of people talk about like ashwagandha, withania, somnifera as a kind of a relaxing adaptogen. And I, I don't necessarily mean Eleuthero as a relaxing adaptogen in that way. I think what I mean to say is that it's not, it's not pushy. It's not, it's not pokey. It's not, uh, it's not aggressive in its action. It's mild, it's steady, and it's stable. Um, and I think it's consistent as well. And when we get the best results, I think the best results come from using Eleuthero um, consistently over time. So consistent use over time yields the most benefit here, I think, because it can take a while for that needle of homeostasis to reset. So, um, you know, between the, the person, the client, um, and, the, and the herb, uh, I like to give them both a little time to make sustainable adjustments. And so I often will see a Luthro in a blend uh, for anywhere between three and six months um, although sources out there also say, oh, you shouldn't use it for more than three months. Um, I haven't actually found this to be the case. So I tend to reach for Eleuthero for very specific support during the perimenopause, actually, and maybe even through the menopause transition. And I, I don't even like using the word menopause. I like menomorphosis because this transition um, over the a person's life is so profound on so many levels, you know, physical, uh, emotional, even spiritual levels that calling it uh, a menopause or a perimenopause just seems like, I don't know, like it's a button that gets pushed and it, it definitely isn't, doesn't feel like that. And that's definitely not the experience um, of the person going through the process. So you know, this this transitional time is, it is a long haul time. And there is an enormous amount of transition that takes place in the neuroendocrine system, right? So this is this is the nervous system, endocrine system, and and where they where they come together, where they meet together. In fact, I often tell my clients that it's like, you know, the the person's body is totally rewiring their systems of communication. And this is something that does not happen overnight um, and requires some pretty significant heavy lifting. And so you put the, the stress of modern life in, uh, in the mix there and uh, you put, you know, kind of chronic malnutrition on the list there. You put all, all the things that you could possibly put in the way of that being a, a smooth transition we go from, uh, you know, what I call landing the plane of the metamorphosis to crashing the plane. Um, and it can almost feel like life ending in that way. Um, and it, it requires a huge amount of stamina for the body, right? And so again, looking at this idea of bringing a luthro in, you know, we have to be mindful of the context, right? So what else is the person doing during this perimenopause into the menopause transition, during the metamorphosis, what else are they doing to fill up their vitality account? Um, and the focus of my work, um, coaching people through this era of their lives, is really about encouraging that whatever it is that brings vitality back into the body. Um, and so, so if that's happening, and um, you know they're they're doing their vitality work, and they're doing their work on changing their attitudes and actions towards their body. Um, I will reach 
uh, for a plant like eleuthero. And usually eleuthero is a, a starting place for me when it comes to all of the various and sundry adaptogens that we could try. Um, I tend to start with eleuthero first. And I, I do that because it is, for me, a very stable, neutral, consistent you know, it, it's it's like the, the 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 floor under your feet, um, your center of gravity kind of herb, um, and I think that it oftentimes is enough uh, to really uh, give that person some strong foundation to you know kind of go through this massive neuroendocrine transition. Um, and so, you know, I, I, it's not like every person that I work with going through perimenopause or the menopause transition is going to get eleuthero in their blend, but it, it does come up a lot uh, in a lot of blends for folks going through this time of their life. Um, I see that specifically when there is this intense emotional fatigue and overwhelm. Emotional fatigue and overwhelm. And that is, um, it's this isn't about being irritable. This isn't about, um, this isn't necessarily about being depressed. This is just, like just not having the emotional stamina to handle the day-to-day stressors of everyday life. Day-to-day stressors are getting increasingly difficult um, because there is a lack of stability underneath the surface, right? Um, I might also see, you know, significant fluctuations in moisture. Um, so this could be, um, you know, there's a pattern of abnormal menstrual cycling. Uh, there might be night sweats. We might see the beginning of, um, you know, phenomena like vaginal dryness. So again, there's, uh, some sort of kind of moisture inconsistency, um, again, looking for that idea of that stable, that consistent, stable ground. Um, and I, I think of this herb, you know, Luthero similarly to American ginseng root in regards to supporting fluids in the body um, and fluid balance, as well as body secretions. Um, So another indication might come up, uh, you know, where I'm I'm thinking about bringing eleuthero into a blend uh, during this perimenopause, menopause transition, is um, there may also be the, the weight change beginning to take place, um, especially around the core or central area, uh, with again fluctuations uh, in appetite accompanied by intense cravings. So, um, you know, the kind of the beginning of some insulin resistance or on the edge of some insulin resistance, not necessarily as a result of bad behaviors <laughs> or as a result of uh, poor nutritional choices, but more uh, as a result of just uh, the nuances of what the perimenopause and menopause transition is all about um, in regards to our endocrine system and. You know, blood sugar control is is a part of that system. So, that that instability, the it's 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 one way or the other, and it's fluctuating, and there's fluctuations, um, and the the person just could use some stable ground to stand on. They're they're exhausted emotionally, um, they're exhausted physically, and uh, they they need that strength, that support. I think eleuthero, you know, especially looking at the way that it grows, I just think that it. Um, it really can provide an enormous amount of strength uh, during these times. So, so with that, um, I think that is all that I have to share uh, about adaptogens and uh, about the lovely eleuthero for today. Anyway, I'm sure I'll return to this amazing topic and the uh, this amazing species um, in a future episode. Um, but until then, 
As we travel through Imbolc, the season of clearing and preparing ground for the year ahead, I wish you all the support needed to learn to look yourself in the eyes and feel your love radiating back at you. As such, I will leave you with the following quote from Clarissa Pinkola Estes and her iconic book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. She writes, When we know our bodies as sacred flesh and bones, blood and heart, we open to how we can experience life through this body. Each cell can awaken to its divinity when we are willing to begin the descent from our heads, where we've been taught to live, back into the body, the only place where aliveness dwells. Thank you all for listening to this month's episode of the Herbal Sensorium. I look forward to hanging out with you again soon. This is Erica Gallantin of Sovereignty Herbs and the Herbal Practice Connection, wishing you wellness wherever you are on your clinical herbalism journey. Thank you all for being with me in the Herbal Sensorium, and I look forward to spending time with you again here very, very soon.